Dialogue Book Report, where we talk about books and literature of interest to LDS readers. I'm Andrew Hall, the Literature Book Review Editor at Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought. And I'm coming to you from a home we've just moved into at the beach of Imazu in Fukuoka, Japan. Well, today we have two excellent segments. First, a conversation with two music scholars, Michael Hicks and Jake Johnson, about their recent works on Mormon music and theater. Then a conversation with two book reviewers, Amanda Ray and Liz Busby, to talk about recent novels by LDS authors. Today, I'm honored to be joined by two distinguished musicologists and musicians, both of whom are scholars of Mormon-related music and theater, as well as many other interests, including avant-garde composers. Michael Hicks recently retired after 35 years as a professor of music at Brigham Young University. He's the author of several books, including Mormonism and Music, A History, 60s Rock, Garage, Psychedelic, and Other Satisfactions, The Mormon Tabernacle Choir, A Biography, and most recently, Spencer Kimball's Record Collection, Essays on Mormon Music. He has twice won the ASCAP Deems Taylor Award for his writing about music, and a third time as editor of the prestigious journal American Music, a post he held in 2007 to 2010. He has been the winner of the Association for Mormon Letters Award three times, and a finalist two more times. A review of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, a biography, which appeared in the Wall Street Journal said, Mormon history written by Mormons can be pretty dry, but Mr. Hicks is funkier than your average saint. Michael is a real man of letters. He is not only a musicologist and a composer, but also a poet and essayist. Works that have been recognized outside of his music scholarship include the street legal version of Mormon's book, a rewritten version of the Book of Mormon, including digressions, snippets of commentary, queries, and humor, which the original editor, Mormon, apparently cut. Also, Do Clouds Rest? Dementia Adventures with Mom, a short book featuring a series of diary-like essays recording the time Michael spent with his mother after he moved her into an assisted living facility, her dementia and rapid decline. It's made up of 57 numbered notes he kept on post-its, chronicling their conversations and his observations during these visits. It is a beautiful, funny, mournful book. I really encourage uh, everyone to, to, to read both those books. I've recently discovered the street legal version of Warren's book, and I don't know what I've been missing. It's a wonderful, funny, interesting book. And there's a great YouTube video of Michael reading a section from 3rd Nephi about the Nephites fighting the Gadiashian robbers and massacring them. And just an amazing, funny, uh, and sad uh, take on that, that, that moment there. Uh, he and his wife, Pam, are the parents of four children and the grandparents of 14. Jake Johnson is an associate professor of musicology at Oklahoma City University's Wanda L. Bass School of Music. He's a scholar of American music, tracing intersections of music and sound with religion, aging, materiality, media, and the economy. He is particularly interested in what everyday work, music, voice, and sound do for people, how communities perform with and listen to one another through musical values. He's the author of Mormons, Musical Theater, and Belonging in America from 2019, which was an AML Award finalist. And his book, Line in the Middle, Musical Theater and Belief at the Heart of America, has just been published by the University of Illinois Press. When not teaching, playing, or writing about music, he works with his wife and two daughters on restoring the historic home they lovingly call Joan. Michael and Jake, welcome. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Can you give us more of a personal introduction? Tell us a little bit about uh, your childhood, uh, how you first encountered Mormonism, you mentioned in, in uh, thinking about or writing about Mormonism, and what drew you to study and perform music. Uh, Michael, let's start with you. Well, uh, actually, you're going to get a very detailed and sometimes um, gummy <laughs> and slightly revelatory version of that uh, portion of my life in my next book, which is called Wineskin. The subtitle is Freakin' Jesus in the 60s and 70s. 
But to, to answer your question without uh, shilling for a, a, a new book that's as yet uncompleted, I, uh, I was born and raised in San Jose, California, and then the peninsula. My parents separated when I was nine years old, and uh, I moved into, uh, from the Baptist church, uh, sort of non well, it's Peninsula Bible Church, which was a well-known non-denominational uh, church uh, there in Palo Alto, and became interested in Latter-day Saint faith through friends and uh, basically <laughs> through Walter Martin's book, Kingdom of the Cults. I thought, well, I need to know more about this because I, I wouldn't want to learn about Jews from Nazis. And so I started reading things like Joseph Smith's testimony, the pamphlet, and so on, and uh, eventually uh, joined. And of course, uh, having retired after 35 years at BYU, I obviously stayed active in the church through the years and, and remain so. That's uh, how I got into it. Now, the musical part I guess I was raised in a slightly musical home, but always was fascinated with music. And in high school, you know, taught myself guitar, piano, and uh, haunted uh, thrift stores for records of a lot of Baroque music was my thing then. And through high school and university, became a little bit more of an avant-gardist in some ways. So I've, I've had sort of a, a dual career as a singer-songwriter type, then also as a professorial composer. And uh, as far as the musicologist part, I, I don't have any degrees in musicology, but I have a, a full-time career as a part-time musicologist. So I'm best known, actually, as a musicologist, even though... I have no credentials to be one. Okay. And Mormon, okay, I, Mormon, I have some credentials. <laughs> <laughs> Jake, uh, tell us about your background. Yeah, sure. I, uh, I grew up in a very small rural part of Oklahoma, in Hughes County, Oklahoma, and was raised in the Community of Christ, or the Organized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time. I grew up being confused with being a Mormon <laughs> by the mostly <laughs> evangelical Protestant friends I had around me. And so I was used to defending this faith that I had very little knowledge of. And at some point, my curiosity got the best of me. And I started looking into this a bit more when I was a teenager in high school. Eventually, I joined the the LDS church. Uh, in fact, it was the day after I, my 18th birthday that I was baptized into the church. And I got married about a month later, uh, also to a, a Mormon woman. And so we've kind of navigated, it's kind of unusual waters of, of going into the into Mormonism. We were sealed a year later. I didn't I never served a, a mission because uh, I was a, a married chap by the time <laughs> most people were off doing that. So I, I kind of fell into the lap of Mormonism uh, rather curiously um, looking back at it and similarly kind of fell into a conversion to musicology because I started out as a as a piano performance major. That's what my, my undergraduate degree was in, and that was my ticket out of this kind of rural life. I grew up playing piano for church services and for musical theater productions and high school bands, that kind of thing, and was dead set on doing collaborative piano work as a vocal coach and a conductor at some point. And I kind of fell into musicology again towards the end of my, my time in college and 
I guess similar to Michael, I don't know. I mean, I am credentialed in this thing, but I don't know if I've ever felt part of the club either. <laughs> uh, uh, whatever musicology is, I guess it can include us, <laughs> no matter what, no matter what we yeah. we call ourselves. Yeah. My favorite definition of musicology is Bill Ford's teaches at Indiana University, says musicology is whatever you can get away with. <laughs> and I think yeah. uh, that speaks speaks as yeah. much for my work. I don't know, Michael, if you feel that way too, yeah. but it, I guess we'll call ourselves that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was John, John Cage was asked about this. Uh, he, he'd asked a historian, uh, so how do you do this history? And he said, I make it up. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> We're not supposed to tell that part. Uh, <laughs> let's start off. I was interested in looking at both your works. One of the things that you both talked about was how in the mid-20th century, the LDS Church used music as a way to try to gain national and even worldwide legitimacy as Christians, as Americans, as acceptable to society. And I'm thinking of like 1947's Promised Valley, the musical pattern on Oklahoma, which told the story of Mormon settlement in Utah, and, and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and especially the Golden Age of Radio. And uh, I wonder if you could tell me a little about that, and I mean, just the stories of these institutions and these plays, how they came about, and how significant you think you are. And Can we start with Jake? Tell us about Promised Valley. Sure. Well, I, I think these stories are pretty well connected, actually, because uh, Promised Valley was the, the, the kind of centerpiece of this centennial celebration uh, that Utah was putting on. And of course, the church was very involved in organizing and kind of spearheading that. Um, they chose a musical partly because Mormons had by this point been pretty well versed in uh, pageantry, this kind of outdoor spectacles musical dramas and Promise Valley was to be that as well. It was performed at the University of Utah's football stadium. <laughs> it was performed outdoors in a bowl that was for, that was modeled after the Hollywood Bowl. So there was a lot of models, cultural models that were being uh, exercised in this particular production. And this was, was 1947. Down? This was four years after Oklahoma had premiered in 1943. And Oklahoma is really important historiographically in musical theater. It's the first collaboration with Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, but it's also a wartime piece that was about, you know, fractured community that somehow heals together despite all their differences. And it's clearly a, a not so thinly veiled <laughs> celebration of America also kind of, you know, collaborating to, to beat the bad guys. And importantly, the Mormon church and the leaders of Utah saw that it was an opportunity to use a musical that was already in well favor uh, and, and base their own story in this kind of musical framework that might turn Mormonism away from being this odd, weirdo religion known mostly as its polygamous sect into something that was a bit more in the middle of the country, more kind of in mainstream. So it was about celebrating religious freedom. It was following this family as they trekked westward to resist any kind of persecution. And at the center of this musical, and what I at least what I talk about quite a bit in the book, in this chapter anyway, is uh, this metaphor of choral singing, of choirs. And so many numbers, I think there's like 11 choral numbers in this musical, which is very odd. Many, many duets, many ensemble pieces. In fact, there's a piece in the show called the Choir Practice Song. <laughs> <laughs> where, 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 where there's this kind of fourth wall is broken and we're taught how to actually practice as a choir. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's kind of predictable metaphors of like, well, if you sing together, we have harmony. And this is, you know, we follow the rules and everything is dictated. This was tapping into a, a clear sensibility in, the, in America at this time that if we can sound similar, if we can sound the same, if we can somehow harness our vocal energies similarly, then we can 
we could finally be this kind of collective nation. And so the vocal metaphors and analogies were really redolent throughout. And this was a really strong position that the church was taking through this musical to say, this is a faith that's homegrown in America, and we want to now be at the center of America and no longer on the fringes of it. And so it's it's important, I think, to for Michael's Michael's work, and this was very important in my thinking as I was going through this with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, because this was similarly going on. The church was making similar efforts politically and elsewhere with using the choir as well. Do you see a connection there? I, I think that uh, a couple of quotations come to mind. One, uh, this was actually said in a Sunday school I, when I was in Hugh Nibley's ward, and Nibley had a class, uh, a Sunday school class. It was in the chapel, and all these visitors were there all the time. And he's not a very good Sunday school teacher, by the way, but <laughs> in, in any case, that's another story. He said, the church has always been determined to put its best foot forward. The question is always, which is its best foot? And I've thought about that so often over the years. And uh, this relates to what Jake was saying, too. The, the church trying to say, okay, here's who we are, but which of the feet are we going to put forward as, as our best foot? And for a long time, it was uh, aesthetic, I would say, the aesthetic foot, if there's such a thing, that the quality of artistry, craftsmanship, education, whatever, was the thing the church wanted to promote. When I joined the church in the 1970s, I was so drawn to, in contrast to what I grew up with in, in sort of evangelical circles, I was drawn to something called the Pursuit of Excellence program that young adults were part of, and you'd set goals for yourself. And it was, you determine what you want to be excellent at and do that and figure out how you're going to do that. Well, that's sort of, I don't want to say it's gone from the church now, but it's certainly sort of eroded, if not evaporated, since then. But So that was a thing for a long time. And in the earliest years of the church, well into the mid-20th century, and, and certainly even into my time in entering the church in the 1970s, I think the best foot was always about excellence. And so that was a kind of aesthetic excellence the quality of what you are doing. Now, that's separate from the messages that Jake talks about that are in the lyrics and the dramaturgy and so on and so forth. The other, boy, there's other quotes that come to mind, but I'll just mention this one. This is Boethius. Music is so much a part of our natures that we could not do without it, even if we wanted to. And so you cannot have a major religion without something that is sound-based. We think of it as music. You might have other kinds of sounds that some would say is not musical. Jake knows more about this than you know anyone around, uh, the acoustic aspect of religion. And I, and I mean actual religion, not just religiosity, because a lot of what we do musically is, is in that vein. Right. And it has to do with branding and has to do with how to... Um, inject messages into the psyche and so on <laughs> by using music you know there's the, the old uh, it's a saint jerome i think maybe uh so we use music in the church uh, like the wise physician who smears the rim of the cup of medicine with honey so that the person will take it mm. i think that the church has just been so taken with music as 
a way of putting its best foot forward, but never quite sure which is the best foot. And so how to use music, is it for indoctrination? Is it for promulgation of a brand? Is it for the purity, uh, uh, the quality, the aesthetic aspect of it, and so on? I think that is something, I won't say it's yet to be turned, because I don't think it ever will be. Because as uh, going back to Jacques Barzin uh, in his uh, uh, use and abuse of, uh, anyway, as a book on religion and the arts. And there's always this conflict of religion and arts because both of them make similar claims. They both promise bliss and they do it in different ways. And so in, uh, in the church, you have ecclesiastical leaders who know nothing about music who are regulating music. <laughs> on the on the premise that, as a, as a prelate said uh, centuries ago, music is too precious to be left to musicians. But unfortunately, as I had the experience in one ward once, the, the bishop said wasn't too happy with what I was playing, and I said, "Then you play it." Uh, when I was playing on the organ, I said, "Then you play it," <laughs> and that was that. Because it's a you know it's it's a code. It's a, it's in self. It is itself a guild. And already has built into it a kind of enmity to religion, certainly any religion that says we're the one true one, which someone once said that mm-hmm. <laughs> in Mormonism. <laughs> well, but don't get away from talking about the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. <laughs> I want to hear something about that. And you had this great essay in the Spencer Kimball book about writing, which was, I thought, a wonderful essay just about the background of writing a book and the, the politics that are involved in that and the review process, uh, and you got a lot of blowback. What problem did people have with what you said about the Mormon Tabernacle Choir? Well, you know, the Tabernacle Choir is a cult within a cult, some would say. Uh, and, and by the way, I say that with all due respect. <laughs> you know, I mentioned Walter Martin's Kingdom of the Cults uh, as an entree into the church ring. I have huge appreciation for cults. I love cults, actually. I think cults are what move the world forward in many cases. Now, they can be destructive, and uh, they eventually seem to self-detonate, But uh, and, which has actually, in some ways, happened to the Tabernacle Choir. Don't tell them I said that, but there, there is no Mormon Tabernacle Choir anymore because it got to be too good in itself, if that makes sense. And... Uh, but when I say a cult within a cult, uh, again, saying I love the fact that Mormonism is a cult. It's a great cult. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I was told you, you can't talk to people who are in the choir about the choir. And anything, uh, any interviews you have must be approved by the choir president and so forth. I was coming at it from a different point of view and from what I knew about it historically. And so dealing with the, the contemporary choir, its membership, trying to get a sense of what's the actual experience of being in the group. Tell me your stories. Extremely controlled. So there's that aspect of pushback. Now, I had someone tell me, this was uh, in 2018. The book came out in 2015, I think. He said, there are people who feel that your book is a tool of the adversary. I thought that was a great statement. I kind of admired that in a way. I thought, really? 
Um, not that I want to be perceived that way, but it shows how important, how close to the bone, how deep into the, the blood the loyalty to the choir goes. Uh, I've heard people say, Your, yours is the, the most read, least talked about book in the choir. <laughs> and, uh, it's because there's, they have their own kind of sanctity within themselves as a group. And, and that has existed for decades. I think it's well-earned in, in a way. And I think it's part of what I was saying before with you know, religion and art uh, having competing claims. The people who join the Tab Choir, they want to stay in it, and that's their church. That's their experience of church because they're having a spiritual thrill doing it. And if you come into that and say, well, let's talk about the humanity of it. And, and I named the book, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, a biography, because I wanted to talk about, well, what's the human experience? And, and what are the conflicts that go with humanity in the experience? Now, again, I don't know if I'm evading or uh, piercing to the heart of your questions, but the pushback has to do with the strong family and, again, blissfully cultish allegiances that exist within the choir. Now, I don't know whether, well, I actually believe, at least, if not know, that the choir, in having its name removed by President Nelson, was a way of really stripping that back, saying, you're not the Mormon Tabernacle Choir anymore. You are this the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square. Because the Mormon Tabernacle Choir had become a huge thing. It was America's choir, so-called. And it, it, in a way, had, had uh, drawn attention away from the more either prosaic or mundane or profound, depending on your point of view, aspects of its sponsoring church. Oh, so more than just getting away from the term Mormon, which we all suspected, but even more than that, taking back some of the authority away from them, making them less of an independent organization and more of a... Oh, yes. The, you know, the conductors of, of the Tabernacle Choir have always been, just like you know Michelangelo, Pope Pius, whatever. You know, I'm just saying it's always been a conflict of authority. And if you read the book you might note that other than Gerald Otley, and we'll, we have yet to see what happens with Mac Wilbur, other than Gerald Otley, not one director of the choir from George Careless on has ended their career with the choir without bitterness. Wow. And, and that's extraordinary. But a lot of it has to do with the leadership of the choirs, uh, that, excuse me, the leadership of the church saying, okay, you have become too much of an authority in yourself, mm. in a way. You know, I, I'll just throw this in as kind of a footnote. It's mm. something that's not in, the, in any of the books, but I was contacted by, uh, I'm, I'm going to leave their names out of it, but by the children of one of the previous choir directors. And they said, can we talk with you? Because our father never told us what happened in his departure from the choir and you say things in the book that we didn't know anything about. And I said, well, I'll just give you this, what I have and the interviews that I've read and oral histories and so on. And they, they just were so appreciative 
They still want to meet with me, but even when I gave them, they, they said, this is great. Our dad never talked about this. It was, it was like, a, you know, these non-disclosure agreements. It's kind of that sort of a vibe a mm. lot with the choir. And it's, it's very sad, but I think it's inevitable. And I think that it's an important part of this necessary, in some ways, conflict between aestheticism and religion. Now, I think you both know each other's work pretty well. Let's have you ask each other something about the other person's book. <laughs> Michael, let's start, if you could ask Jake, what's something in his book that you'd like to hear him talk more about or that you have a question about? Maybe it's at, at this stage of life, I'm, I'm mostly interested in the reception history because that's the actual history that goes forward in many ways. So I'd like to know from Jake what kinds of responses he's gotten, either from people within the church, uh, and I'm not sure how much of that you get directly, other than maybe some reviews, but uh, or outside, or how do people perceive what you've done? Because it's you know it's quite different from stuff I've done, yeah. I suppose. But. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really generous question, actually. You know, so so much of the book was designed not to be about Mormons. You know, there's a lot packed into this book. And so, you know, I was worried, to be honest, I didn't know how the Mormon community would receive it. Not because I was overly critical. I didn't Mm -hmm. feel I was overly critical, but I just didn't know what this story of aesthetics would really mean to the broader community. And I want to say, I mean, the reception within the Mormon world has been positive. I I think curious. I think it's a story Mm -hmm. that maybe they didn't understand about themselves or know fully, but it's, it's kind of like once you buy a black Prius, you start seeing a black Prius everywhere you go. (laughs) I think now that you know, you know, you know, it's like now you, now that you're aware of it, it's like, Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there is, there is a a sermon here about (laughs) Saturday's warrior again, or, Oh, Mm -hmm. here's Fiddler on the roof coming into the story one more time. Mm -hmm. And they do start cropping up. The more you start paying attention to them. So I think it's always there. It's been such an important part of Mormonism that it's been buried and hidden in plain sight. And I think that's something that's, you know, for both of our studies of sound and music, music is too fine of a point, I think, for what mm. what I think both of our work is trying to get at. You talked about the kind of the human quality yeah. behind the choir. And I think there's something really powerful that happens when we listen to our listening, mm-hmm. when we pay attention mm-hmm. to the sounds people make. And musicology, at least can, <laughs> in, in our world, can do that. Yeah. So, you know, I think the reception of the book has been positive. I think, you know, outside the church, the... Results are still coming in, sure. but I think the biggest consensus is like, oh, I know one musical. <laughs> you know, when you talk about, I wrote a yeah. book, there's a whole book on Mormons yeah. and musicals. Uh, they know one. And within musicology, there's been such a tendency to see Broadway as the pinnacle and mm-hmm. as the kind of only place where musical theater mm-hmm. matters. And with this book, as well as the book that's that's coming out this fall, I really try to resist that and try to show what everyday people are using musicals for that are often so obvious and so mm-hmm. uh, central to a community's way of being mm-hmm. that they don't get paid attention to. And musical theater, uh, at least I try to make the strong case for it in Mormonism, is as connected and entangled within Mormonism mm-hmm. from the very beginning as anything else. And if we pause to, to listen to the kind of sonic history of Mormonism, then we we may be actually experiencing a different thing than what we thought before. Yeah. Hey, Jake, can I ask you a question? Not directly in your book, but tell me your response to 
the basic <laughs> detonation of pageants <laughs> in the church. Yeah. Which which took place really after you did the book. Yeah, yeah, right after. Right? Yeah, yeah, or shortly after. That was curious. I I, uh, I wrote an op-ed for the Salt Lake Tribune where I talked a little bit about this mm. um, kind of conjecture, but you know the, the the issues of race are so entangled within the history of Mormons and mm. musicals, especially with mm. pageantry as this kind of emblem of whiteness that Mormonism was aspiring toward for so long in the 20th century. And mm -hmm. by the time we get to Book of Mormon, the musical on Broadway, there's reason to mock that that association with whiteness and musicals and Mormons. It becomes mm -hmm. laughable. Well, one of two reasons. I think in some case that whiteness becomes a liability in a 21st century Mormonism and musical theater is just one of those extra things mm -hmm. through pageantry that's just not really benefiting as much as it's causing questions to be raised. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing that probably factors into that is that this kind of American exceptional musical theater version of Mormonism is maybe less and less relevant as the church becomes more and more global. Mm, right. Um, yeah. And, but I, I would say this, even if the church decides to get rid of all of its pageants, um, it can't scrub out. There's mm -hmm. no scalpel sharp enough to take out musical theater right. from yeah from Mormonism, they are very much uh, twinned, uh, twin, twinned experiences. Yeah, that's it's an interesting thing though, isn't it? Yeah. It's kind of yeah. quick departure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, so so Michael, maybe in my turn, I can ask you some questions. I thought- Can I just say one thing to you? Of course, Megan Sanborn Jones came out with her book on contemporary Mormon pageantry. And, and uh, I said, so what response have you gotten to it? She said, well, the church gave me its response. <laughs> Shut everything down. <laughs> yeah, so anyway. It's oh, funny. Uh, well, so this book, Spencer, Spencer Kimball's Record Collection, yeah. is such a, it's, a, it's just packed full of interesting things. And Thank I think you. people, again, will, will encounter this book from many different perspectives. Some never have ever thought critically about the musical history. Mm -hmm. Or, as I said, kind of giving a listening ear. I mean, something that maybe we can talk about, at least that I feel, is that Mormon studies as a mm -hmm. whole has been so heavily predominated by historians yeah. that when we have a cultural sensibility towards towards it, it becomes a little bit of a question mark. Like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mm -hmm. mean here? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so this is a general question and maybe a, a silly one to start with, but I'm just curious of all these essays, because you run the gamut here within this book, mm -hmm. did you have a favorite one? Um, that you enjoyed the most in writing? <laughs> you know, I actually thought before this uh, discussion, I thought, what if someone asked me that? What would I say? <laughs> so uh, we didn't conspire. We did not conspire. Andrew. No, we did not. Um, uh, you know, I really don't, other than the last one, which is which really talks about being in this whole business, this whole game of writing about Mormon history of any kind, but you know, with me, it's been via music to sort of uh, exorcise in some ways the conflicts there. So that was a favorite for me to to write, to say, here's what's going on. Here's what's behind all this. Mm -hmm. You know, if you talk about favorite chapters with respect to their content, you know, where I'm not, where the content isn't my own experience, I don't know. I will say that the two favorites of mine are newer ones because a lot of them are, are, are recycles or re rewritten things from earlier publications. I really enjoyed getting into the Mormon Pioneers record production and how that happened. 
and so on. And I, I start that, of course, with a little bit of memoir with showing it to Ramble Jack Elliott, who was on the record, and he'd never seen the record before <laughs> that was came out in the 60s. But I spent a lot of time getting to know the people, uh, well, some of the people involved with people of the book, which is the most actually closely associated with what what you do, because it's a, it's a musical, basically, mm-hmm. and learning about that whole process and really getting into that. And of course, it has a lot to do with race, too, because it's part of this, the whole reclamation <laughs> of, of the Lamanites or Native Americans, Indians. That's a play called The People of the Book? Yeah, it's one of the chapters in, in my book. It's a, a musical from the late 60s that uh, was it was a pageant and it was meant to be something that would continue on but it, it never rose to the level of some of the others but it's it's more curious and eclectic and it illuminates as much as anything that, that is the chapter this tremendous mormon pipeline from la burbank to provo utah mm-hmm. and to some extent salt lake that's been going on for decades people don't really understand it but it comes up all the time well it comes up all the time because i know a lot of people in it but (laughs) but uh i I really enjoyed working on those because it was new and it was because it was stuff that i was really curious about for a long time Mm -hmm. i i'd had the the people of the book soundtrack album for i don't know a couple decades in my collection but it's like i'm gonna find out what the heck this was and as one gets into it, and the you know the proverbial peeling back the layers of the onion, it's like wow, this is this is crazy, and I love it because if Mormonism is doesn't have crazy at the heart of anything interesting, <laughs> then it's not real Mormonism as far as I'm concerned. And again, yeah. I say that as you know, with all due respect, as we say, I love the crazy part of it. That's some of my favorite. Well, let's hear a little bit about the 19th century. You have some really interesting notes about, uh, about the 19th century. I was especially interested in the one about Emma Smith mm-hmm. and the kind of the split between what Emma wanted in the hymn books mm-hmm. and what the other apostles wanted in the hymn books. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that? You've, you've sort of given a thumbnail of what it is. It's, it's Emma versus the apostles, and it's, it's a woman versus uh, men who have... Uh, you can talk about uh, the differences between male and female as as concepts, you know, not just genitalia or social roles, but, you know, the idea of masculine and feminine. This, I mean, when I was going to school, in theory classes, we talked about certain cadences as masculine cadences and others as feminine cadences. That was pretty standard back then. But beyond that, the apostles at, at that time... The average age was 26, 27, right in there. And I've discussed this with people. I said, do you remember when you were 27? And, <laughs> and I mean, you had energy. And, and what they were trying to do was a Sisyphean sort of effort. They were, they were really trying to, to move a huge boulder of faith, you know, across the planet. And so... Uh, I remember uh, Paul Dunn, Elder Paul Dunn, saying, it was only when I went to my first meeting of the general authorities that I realized how the war in heaven could have broken out. <laughs> and, 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 you know, it, I'm just saying, so they're not just men. I'm saying these are men 
who they have to have a certain kind of ferocity. And the hymnody that they picked had this same kind of not just sturdiness, but a kind of aggression to it that is in saying, we are the kingdom, we are the champions, as it were. And so, you know, paradoxically, the assignment from the beginning, from July 1830 on, was given to Emma Smith to decide the hymns to be sung in the church. Well, her sensibilities were not only different from the apostles and and generally speaking the the leadership of men in the church but she she took very seriously the fact that she was in charge of this and so as you know the title of that chapter is how the church left emma smith and why you should care we often hear talk about emma smith as somehow leaving the church or there was a division and and so on. But I don't think we've ever talked about it in the realm of historians in this way. It's saying that the church left behind the direction that Emma Smith was going with its hymnody. And hymns are, you know, hymns are in every meeting of the church, I would say. I mean, maybe not some council meetings and so on, but you, we have them all the time. And they're just saturating our religious experience. I get asked this all the time. I get asked, do you think in this new hymn book that's being talked about and planned, do you think we'll get Amazing Grace in there? It's like, it was there. And we left it behind. I don't think it'll be back. Maybe. Anyway, this sensibility of Emma Smith I don't know that it's necessarily a feminine sensibility. It's just her personal sensibility and the fact that she was in charge and the apostles said, no, we're in charge. We're back to that competing authorities mm. issue in some ways because she had it by revelation. And that was unusual. Well, see, that's what's so interesting, Michael, because I mean, I grew up in the community of Christ, you yes. know, Emma's church, right? This, 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 <laughs> sure, this division. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. and musically, these are night and day organizations today, uh, right? I mean, they are absolutely. completely different, and the hymnal really reflects that. And so yes. what your chapter here that you're talking about brought to my mind is just how far the, the doors of our life swing on small hinges, as they say, yes. right? And so yes, these small yes. decisions that were made regarding seemingly insignificant things like the text or the hymns mm-hmm. in a book— mm-hmm may have actually led to even a greater difference in experiencing pop, you know, religious possibilities between these two organizations. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I always return to my own work in thinking outside of Mormonism as well, just to what degree does the sounds available to us dictate the kinds of living or life possible? You know, and you see this all the time in music history when anyone comes around with this bold idea to like expand the tonal language we have mm-hmm. or to stretch things in such a way Mm-hmm. They start accumulating people who call themselves disciples, and they start experiencing mm-hmm. this kind of religious freneticism. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of like Wagner mm-hmm. or um, you know uh, John Cage or Harry Parch. These figures who who are so bold enough to open up a new way of listening to the world that they may actually open up a, some kind of portal, right, into mm-hmm. into a, a way of existing. And I think. In some ways, this is what's going on here. That mm-hmm. it, it's, it seems so everyday and, and insignificant. Yeah. It's just the hymns we sing, although, as you rightly say, they yeah. are at the center of it all, yeah. and maybe they're playing a more important role 
historically mm. than we have given much thought to. Yeah. Well, and what is the difference? So what, what is the difference between Emma's sensibility and what became the LDS hymn mainstream? Well, uh, in some ways, Emma Smith's is closer to what I grew up with in, in, in the Baptist church uh, and so on. It, it has to do with personal experience, the individual's experience and encounter with the divine, Jesus in particular, not the we thing, you know, and I've written about this before and you, you can read it in, you know, an earlier book of mine or, you know, th this notion that uh, we, we convert songs that were about the individual encounter with uh, God to the communal encounter with God. So, I mean, so a song like All Is Well, that was a popular uh, gospel song, earliest publication I'm aware of was 1838, and it starts off, what's this that steals, that steals across my frame? Is it death? Is it death? That soon will quench, will quench this vital flame? Is it death? All is well, and so on. And so the, the tune's the same, of course. But it's all about an individual confronting death and saying, I will be with Jesus, all is well. Well, this is a great example of what's happened with so many hymns in our faith in, in the early decades. That thing becomes us together encountering whatever it is. And so we say, and should we die, you know, before our journey's through? It's not my journey, it's our journey. Emma was going in the opposite direction. She was kind of pushing back against the W.W. Phelps first-person plural version of everything and bringing it back to first person singular so you know, that's that's the, the the biggest distinction yeah go ahead Jack. yeah well i just think there's such consequence to that yes uh philip barlow has made a comment before that mormons lack any kind of art that's tragic mm -hmm. and it was such an interesting point everything is celebratory everything's reconciliatory um, everything's collective but at some point, when we're, we all confront something tragic in our lives, unless we're incredibly lucky, without a statues of weeping mothers, mm -hmm. for instance, or literature that really is looking at death square in its, mm -hmm. in its eyes as an individual experience, I think Barlow is making the point that we are in some ways depraved of an opportunity to actually be mm -hmm. human and regretting that. And I think it's true. And I think in this, you know, the, even the hymn book has exactly your, your point you're making. We're, we're looking to this kind of collective experience, which has possibilities, right? <laughs> but there's a, there's a consequence to mm -hmm. kind of an oversaturation with that. Yeah. What history, at least the early history of the church, uh, is more tragic. I mean, it's just loaded with tragedy. And I think that uh, Emma Smith, who had her own personal tragedies in the death of children and so on as well, and a and a, and a roving husband, uh, we'll say, um, <laughs> to be blunt about it. I think that she was trying to find and to share and to inculcate the consolation that personal devotional hymnody could offer and was not the nature of the men involved to, to do. Yeah. Michael, can I ask you a quick question? Sure. Yeah. It's a quick one, but it's like, you know, it's a complicated one. Sure. I'm just curious if you've given much thought to this, because I think about this quite a bit. But what happens in your mind when you listen to Mormonism, when we when we turn an ear to it? Do you feel like you experience something different than maybe what we get with the other 
kind of typical ways we encounter faith. Now, when when I listen to Mormonism, tell me more about what you're thinking there in that question. You can have it be uh, a longer question. <laughs> yeah, it's a longer one, and maybe it's a reflective one, but I think Peter McMurray and right. uh, others have written about sounding Mormonism, mm-hmm. you know, returning to the first vision, not as a vision at all, mm-hmm. but actually centered around sound, mm-hmm. listening, voice. You know, what we encounter when we stop looking at the archive of, mm-hmm. of yeah. dates, right, mm-hmm. and memorabilia, and we actually kind of, as you as you do with and really beautifully in this essay about Spencer W. Kimball's mm-hmm. record mm-hmm. collection, like if we actually get inside the ears of, you know, a, pro- a prophet or even kind of more mundane Mormon experiences, if you've ever given thought to like how people's, how our ears actually work, our, our ears, mm-hmm. you know, our collective Mormon mm-hmm. sensibilities, or what happens when we kind of attune ourselves to <laughs> In response to your question, I have a couple of examples that may or may not pertain as well as you would like them to, but one is that my mother years ago would visit occasionally out here, visit me and my wife and our children and she would come to church with us, and she never went to LDS churches otherwise. She she went to, uh, as they say, Peninsula Bible Church and uh, and Baptist Church, and she was actually raised Presbyterian. So she'd come into our meetings. She would always say, "It's so noisy in here," and it was like, it, "No, this is this is the soundtrack <laughs> of our church." You get used to it. It's like I think of it as a beautiful thing to have this sort of burbling sound of of infants and not so much the chattiness you know maybe that during the organ that i'm trying to play maybe it's prelude but but still you know during the sacrament you know you've got this, these little voices all around and it's a kind of a resonance of of uh, humanity and even of eternity in a way and she just was horrified that it was so blasphemous or sacrilegious, maybe not blasphemous, but sacrilegious and, and disrespectful somehow. And so there's that aspect that I don't think people think about very much. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is in testimony meetings, when they now open the time for you to share your testimonies, <laughs> and there are some people who cannot stand somebody not talking at the pulpit, and they'll say, I couldn't stand I, to, to let the time go by. And it's like, no, that's what we're, we love this, you know. Mm. A lot of us, we, we love the, the fact that it's actually being quiet. There's not someone talking to us at the pulpit and we're not mm. singing. We're just sitting here together being quiet. You can call it reverence if you want. And of course, reverence is equated with quietude. Unnaturally so, I would say. I think yeah. of a, a great, a friend uh, back in the 1970s, a blind uh, poet, LDS young woman, who she wrote uh, a lot of rhyming verses, but this this one caught my ear at the time, and it's uh, it's stayed with me since. She she wrote, "Children shout in holy places, shocked the childless turn away, but reverence will come tomorrow. Happy hearts are here today," mm. and. Uh, I love it. So when I when someone gets up says, I can't stand the silence, you know, in, in so many words, they'll say, you know what I'm saying? It's like, mm. so there are these two sort of uh, sides of the, the acoustic coin in sa- just sacrament meetings, at least. 
that I think we should pay more attention to <laughs> and, and, oh, yeah. and, and get into both of them more. Well, well, I think it was to your point earlier that if we define the aesthetic only by what's in this hymn book or what the choir's doing, mm-hmm. that we miss so much yes. of what you're... Because t- it, it is this kind of chaos of sound. Yes. It is, you know, Lee Eric Schmidt in his book Hearing Things talks about you know, the American religious enlightenment that Mormonism was a part of mm-hmm. as being a very noisy experience, mm-hmm. right? It was all of a sudden God was not quiet any longer. God had many vessels <laughs> through yeah. which he was speaking. Yeah. And they didn't always say the same thing, and so it cultivated a new way of listening. Mm-hmm. And we've become a little deaf to that because we're so used to it. We're immersed in it. It's like the fish not knowing what water yeah. is, right? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, the aesthetic, I, I mean, I think Mormonism can go a long way in reflecting back on what that actually means within mm-hmm. it. Because it's not a depraved religion when it comes to art, mm-hmm. right? It's got, mm-hmm. it defines itself artistically in so many nuanced and lovely ways mm-hmm. that aren't always you know notated <laughs> yeah you know one of my favorite experiences in attending byu as a student was that's where i learned about and really learned the i'll say philosophy of and the aesthetic of and the uh, spirituality of john cage whom i referred to earlier in a different context and of course people often refer to his four minutes, 33 seconds as his silent piece. But of course the whole point, and you know this, the whole point of the piece is there is no silence. Mm. You, as long as you start to open yourself up to the sounds that are happening all the time, because most of our mental exertion, uh, excuse me, most of our, our, our oral exertion is in screening things out, not mm. in actually taking things in. And here he's saying, okay, we're going to take all these things out that you normally focus on, and now you're going to have to surrender to the sound that's there. And I think that that was uh, one of the the greatest things that uh, I learned at BYU, and I wish that we taught it in uh, hymn books in church, not hymn books in church, but in handbooks in church, to, you know, if it's quiet, listen to what's there. And if it's noisy... Listen to what's there. And don't feel like you have to either screen it or block it or ignore it, but say, you know what? There's a lot of things happening here. And maybe I should, uh, maybe I should savor that. And, and, and that there is, a, there is a, a real spirituality and something truly divine in doing that. Because I don't think that God is, I can't imagine if I were in his position, his or her position, I would, I'd be trying to screen a lot of things out. But I have to think, I, I, I used to teach students say, you know, I, I believe very strongly in the crocodile hunter principle, which is you can take the ugliest thing that you don't want to look at and the rest of us screen out. And he would, he would, what would he say? He would take this strange creature and he'd say, she's gorgeous. You know, right. You know, what a beauty. <laughs> and it's like I thought. Well, that boy. If if that isn't what we want God to be like, then I don't know what we would be wanting to actually look at and say. Well, it's it's trite now. You know the old Ray Stevens song, "Everything is beautiful in its own way." But that's a, that's actually a Joseph Smith concept in in many ways. Absolutely. And yeah. I don't think that's something that has been taught 
if at all, very well in the church? Well, I think, you know, the John Cage point is so beautiful because, you know, as he illustrates, there's, as long as you're alive, you're making sounds, your body is making yes. sounds. You, yeah. can't, you can't truly exist. You know, silence is impossible. That was, mm-hmm. it was such a great aesthetic principle mm-hmm. for him, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, Mormonism is great in this regard because God is not some abstract entity. God has a body, has lungs and lips and teeth and ears, presumably mm-hmm. like our own. Mm-hmm. And so the experience of sound is innate within godly beings, mm-hmm. right? They, mm-hmm. These are bodies that make sound too. They yeah. listen yeah. and they are bone and flesh vibrating. And you know, this kind of vibrational quality of the universe is really intimate. You know, there's nothing more intimate yeah. than the fact that even here, you know, we're, we're, we're all converse, conversing remotely from each other, mm-hmm. but, you know, our voices and sounds are digitally reverberating mm-hmm. and then causing bone and flesh to, mm-hmm. to interact. And so we're for a moment truly in sync and harmony with each other. And I think there's something really, truly uh, connected about thinking about God in those mm-hmm. ways, right? The divine is something that's vibrationally connected to mm-hmm. you and not some, some other yeah. you know, more abstract way. We talk about being made in the image of God, and Orson Pratt deals with this in a number of places, but of course in his huge essay, Absurdities of Immaterialism, at the end of that, there's sort of a supplement that he has to that, and it's a Q&A thing, and he deals with the question of why God has ears. We use ears, we think of ears as being ways of receiving information. And they're a great alert system in many ways as well. Um, and you go to the scripture, you know, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear, as Jake has quoted. And faith cometh by hearing, and so on. Well, so Orthopad says, well, it's clear that God doesn't need ears to gain information to, or to gain knowledge uh, or to be alerted to anything. So why does he have ears to listen to sweet music. So God has ears specifically for the aesthetic acoustic experience. Mm, yeah. That's what he says. Now, whether or not you agree, I think this, it's a thing worth thinking about because, as you say, if God has ears, what are they for? Mm. And he says they're just for that. Yeah, I guess what I mean by listening what happens when we listen to Mormonism, mm-hmm. what happens to Mormonism when we listen to it, maybe another way mm-hmm. of putting that question, mm-hmm. is that you realize that matters of sound and of listening and of voice have been at the center of the story from the very beginning, yes. but have been overshadowed by you know, other kind of de- demonstrable ways mm-hmm. of, of negotiating this kind of religious feeling. Well, I see two people... I, I see these person, mm-hmm. you know, I felt this thing. Right. But, yeah. you know, if you dig, not even that deep, you start seeing that sound is central to this. So it's, I think these are conversations that are so fantastic. They're fantastical mm-hmm. in the best kinds of ways because yeah. they are, they're encouraging a different, in some ways, a different kind of religious experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, let's wrap up with, uh, I'd like to hear from both of you. What is one piece of music, LDS related music or theater that, that you would like to have more people experience? Wow. Well, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> well, I can answer it for myself, which is I have a number of pieces that I think that people should, should hear. Instrumental pieces, actually, uh, have a piece called Rain Tiger. And uh, I love when people have spiritual experiences and, and convey to me those experiences 
through pieces I've written, and I, I almost never set a text for many, many years because uh, I like to short circuit it blissfully to short circuit that and go right to what uh, the voice of music itself does regularly. So I, I have my own music. I wish people would hear more and that of many of my friends in, in the same, uh, I'll say vein of music. Uh, and I don't want to mention any others in particular because then that I'm not mentioning will feel snubbed, which I don't mean to do at all. How can people get a hold of your music? I, I have a website, michaelhicks.org. And you can kind of scroll through there and see a variety of things I've done. And I, there are links to some uh, music of mine, including the one I mentioned, Rain Tiger. Uh, again, I, I don't mean to have this be a, <laughs> something no, to, to shill for my own music. But I do think in a, in a larger sense that I wish that members of the church could be more open to the discovery of mystery in musical sound because ultimately any faith is not worth much, in my opinion, without a deep and tantalizing sense of mystery that I think music, instrumental music, can convey in ways that we, we just don't normally access in the church. Okay, great. Thank you. Jake? Yeah, yeah, I would agree with Michael. I, I would say one composer I would recommend is Lamont Young, who grew sure. up in rural Idaho in this Mormon world. And Jeremy Grimshaw has written so beautifully about mm -hmm. this kind of Mormon mysticism that, yeah. that animates so much of Lamont Young's minimalist music. Mm -hmm. But, you know, things like the String Trio, these are pieces that invite mystery yeah. and yeah. A, a different relationship to your listening. I think, you know, they invite you to listen to you're listening yes, great. <laughs> to, to yeah. be reflective about them. And I think that's uh, good medicine for everybody. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Stephen Peck has a novel uh, where I, I'm pretty sure there's a character, there's a minimalist composer in New York City that I'm pretty sure is based on Lamont Young. Yeah. I know I haven't asked him that. But. No doubt. Yeah. Sounds like it. <laughs> Michael, I was looking for your music. There's another LDS Michael Hicks composer out there. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, Michael. So be careful. No, I appreciate you mentioning that. I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, Michael R. Hicks is the one that, you know, he, he, he began in music. I actually signed him into the School of Music as a faculty member when I was in charge of signing people. So over the years, there's been lots of confusion, although people will pick, hear something of his and they will come to me and say, that couldn't have been written by you. And I'm, I'm always grateful to to hear that because people that say oh, i love your your arrangement of i know that my redeemer lives it's like you think i would write that arrangement well, you know anyway <laughs> I, which is not to put him down because that kind of uh music which you know has a particular kind of um a devotional role and a role in meetings uh you know i i've heard for years people um putting down, say, Janice Cat Perry. And it's like, I love Janice Cat Perry and what she has done in music in the church because it's music for youth and somebody needs to do that and she does it well. But that's not what I do. And so I'll say, I'll tell people, i say, if you don't know the difference between Joseph Smith and Joseph F. Smith, I really can't help you. <laughs> Sorry. But I appreciate you mentioning that distinction there, because the, even the church library, the church history library, 
had all our stuff bundled together. Well, Michael D. Hicks, thank you very much. (laughs) Jake Johnson, thank you for joining us. Mom had the loudest voice and strongest opinions in the household. It's impossible to feel the spirit in these episodes. From there, it was the grim weeper. How could you have done this to me, to us? That may sound blasphemous, but it's true. She was determined and committed to her sometimes eccentric opinions. Meanwhile, I'm wondering who's this wonderful fairy tale us he's talking about. Most of my mixed state experiences are channeled into a prayer to my Heavenly Father to please send help. Please take me out of this. Please show me a sign that you still love me. No, of course not. That's why I'm here. I'm willing to do whatever to make things right. This is Dialogue Out Loud, a curated selection of fiction and essays from the pages of Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, brought to life through voice and music. I feel entirely alone in a permanent night, blocked from sunlight by the wall of earth that is my chemical imbalance. My parents were persuaded that this was not just an adolescent whim and allowed me to be baptized, three days shy of my 19th birthday. Oh, he'll hold my hand in sacrament meeting and take me by the arm and open the car door and do all that chivalrous Sir Walter Raleigh stuff in public. But safe at home, I'm invisible. This year, we're bringing you even more great audio stories from our quarterly journal, including pieces by Neil David Sylvester, Linda Hoffman Kimball, Monica Crowfoot, and more. Subscribe to the Dialogue podcast to keep up on our latest episodes or go to dialoguejournal.com for this and more great audio content. That's dialoguejournal.com. Dialogue Podcast Network. Today, I'm joined by Amanda Ray and Liz Busby to talk about novels by Mormon authors published in 2020. Amanda and Liz were both uh, judges of the Association for Mormon Letters Novel Award for 2020, uh, one of a, of a group of judges. So they've read a, a bunch of the novels published over this last year and are here to share their experiences. So welcome. Uh, Liz, could you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. Hi, um, Andrew. I am a writer of... <laughs> All sorts of different genres, but I I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy, especially science fiction and fantasy written by Mormons, and I write a lot about that and trying to write some science fiction and fantasy myself and various other genres. Thanks. Amanda, tell us about yourself. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm Amanda. I am a public librarian in the fields of Iowa, Um in 2020, I, I got married and had been living in Utah, working in a public library there, and got married, and my husband and I are here in Iowa now. Well, so glad to have you. Tell us a little bit about Mormon literature and you. What, uh, what interests you about reading Mormon literature? I kind of like to say that I sort of minored in Mormon literature at BYU. I did a degree in English, but I took the Mormon literature class. I took a class on Hugh Nibley from Gary Gillum, which was super interesting, got to read a lot of the unpublished manuscripts and go through the archives. So I've always been really interested in Mormon writing in that. And it kind of lost that thread as I was a stay-at-home mom for a long time, having kids and being busy and got 
back into it recently, so I try to keep up on things. Um, I've read some of the classics from that Mormon lit class at BYU, but not all of the most recent stuff, although I have read some. How about you, Amanda? Being in a public library, we have this law that we we like to say that um, every book has a reader and every reader their book. And I find that reflected in what I like about Mormon Lit. I get to read stories about a culture and a people that I know very, very well. And I like to read different perspectives on how people have interpreted Mormonism through the decades. Um, So that's usually where I get a good kick out of it, is seeing my background reflected in what I'm reading. Let's start maybe with some some novels that are not so much about Mormon themes, and then we'll move towards the more Mormon-themed novels later. Let's start with speculative fiction, a lot of uh, science fiction and fantasy works that came out this last year. And that's Liz's Bailiwick. Absolutely. I mean, got a big Brandon Sanderson novel out this year, which is always a good year for Mormon speculative fiction. Um, Rhythm of War, the latest in the Stormlight Archive series. Is there ever a year without a big Brandon Sanderson novel? I don't think there's a year without a Brandon Sanderson novel, but the Stormlight Archive ones are about 400,000 words, mm-hmm. whereas most of the typical year ones are only 100,000 words. So. Mm, <laughs> so this one's four times as long. It's a big one. This one's the fourth in the series. I really like this series. I'm working on a paper right now that talks about how I kind of feel like that the magic system in the Stormlight Archive really is basically Mormon theology made into a magic system because it's all about making covenants and, well, oaths, and then about agency, about making the choice to act. And I felt like this novel, Rhythm of War, was really focused on that agency piece. He had several several main characters. It's a big novel, so there's lots of main characters, but three or four of them really struggle with different things that limit their agency. There are a couple of them that have really severe mental illnesses, depression, and then dissociative identity disorder in kind of a fantasy way. But Hmm. they struggle with how those things impact their ability to make choices. What are you responsible for when you have this problem with your brain where it doesn't work correctly? And then there's also in this series, there's a big conflict, a racial conflict between this species that has been enslaved by humans magically. A magical thing happened in the past where their agency was destroyed and they became mindless slaves. And then that's been restored. And so now they have agency to act again, but there's these cultural biases and conflicts and how those limit our ability to have agency. I felt like that was a really strong theme in this book. And then we also have kind of the bad guy in this book, Odium, is very much Mormon Satan, 100%, because the way that he interacts with the characters is by taking away their responsibility and saying, you're not responsible for your actions, I'm going to take all your guilt on me, and then you can just do whatever you want and you'll be fine, you'll be saved. So it's very much a Satan's plan kind of thing, and how that plays out in the novel. So there's a lot of Mormonism in there. Is that very recognized by the general public? I I don't think it's as recognized as it should be. I think amongst Mormon readers, a lot of people see that. Like my sister reads the books and he sa- she says, when I get to the climax, I'm like, oh, here's the Sunday school part. Because you can feel they're very moral books. They're focused a lot on the moral decisions of the characters. So if you're aware of Mormon thought, then I feel like it can't help but jump out to you in the series. But I'm going to write more about that. So maybe you'll see if you agree with me. 
Great. I'm looking forward. DJ Butler had some novels out as well. How did you like his writing? He is very interesting. The two novels that he had out this year, Serpent Daughter and In the Palace of Shadow and Joy, I, I'm working my way through Palace of Shadow and Joy right now, and it is kind of a humorous sci-fi fantasy novel. It is in the vein of like Terry Pratchett or mm. Douglas Adams, where it's just kind of quirky and offbeat. Mm. It's a mystery. Um, Serpent Daughter is probably one that's closer to Mormon, and I did not get through that one because I realized it was the fourth in the series, and it I couldn't start there. So I do plan on going back and reading the others, but it is kind of an alternate history, magical America kind of thing. It felt reminiscent of Scott Card's Alvin Maker series. So I'm interested to, I got to go back and do my homework so I can get to that one. I've read the first one, Witchy Eye, and I mm-hmm. love that novel, and I I. Just I, I need to get back and read the rest of those because yeah, just like you said, it's an album maker. So Mormonism is not part of it, but he very much uses Mormon tropes and Mormon ideas. And I think he's a great author. So. Even the little piece I read, I could feel like there's some, like it's called Serpent Daughter. So there's some Eve and the serpent kind of thing, mm-hmm. like some temple stuff going on in mm-hmm. there. Now he has another series that is specifically Mormon, the first one was The Cunning Man. And we, we talked about that on a podcast uh, last year that said in the 1930s with a Mormon in Utah, kind of rural Utah, who uses folk magic. You know, folk magic works in this world. So also a little bit Alvin Maker. And so the first one was The Cunning Man. And the second novel in that series, The Jupiter Knife, has come out uh, just a couple of months ago. And I'm v- very much looking forward to reading that. Charlie Holmberg also had a novel, Spellbreaker. Mm-hmm. Spellbreaker's an interesting one. I've had a hard time previously with her books just because they're more romance than they are sci-fi fantasy. Um, her Paper Magician series, which was her breakout series, is very, very romancy and less fantasy. But I feel like this one gets the balance of romance and sci-fi fantasy a little more balanced in my favor. <laughs> so I enjoyed this one a lot. Nothing particularly Mormon in this one, um, but it is an interesting take kind of on class and racial tensions. It's an alternate England, and people are either born with the ability to do spells, which you can buy the right to do spells, and so there's a class component of who can afford to do magic, or you can be born with the talent to break spells. So the main character cannot do any magic, but she can break other people's magic. That's the only thing she can do, and so she's kind of hired to break other people's magic. She works clandestinely destroying spells and things for people. It's an interesting premise, and there's definitely a strong romance element. If you're a romance reader, you should look Charlie up. Now, since the late 20th century, there's been a lot of LDS authors in speculative fiction, and I've I've heard lots of different theories about why that is. Do you have a theory? Oh, I have lots of theories. I mean, I think it's partially the success of, you know, Scott Card and then Brandon Sanderson... They're very open about being Mormon, and so other writers see that, other other people see that and then want to follow in their footsteps and feel like this is a good place. And they've also put, those successes have put in a lot of institutions which help, like the Life, the Universe, and Everything Conference, which used to be at BYU and is now independent of BYU, but still held in Provo. It's a very big speculative fiction conference for writers. There are several around here for developing writers, and there's a couple of magazines, like there's The Leading Edge at BYU, and there was Deep Magic, which was run by two Mormon authors. They just announced that it's closing this week, but there's like about five years of archives of really good uh, science fiction and fantasy stories, and a lot of them are LDS authors. So a very strong community. Yeah, and, the, and there's a class at BYU that 
Brandon Sanderson teaches every winter on writing science fiction and fantasy. And so Charlie Holmberg actually came out of that class, and several other of the recent um, Mormon authors have come out of that class. And then, of course, there's like the theological component. I feel like Mormonism can be difficult and tricky to any religion, really, can be difficult to explore in realistic fiction because you either have to come down on the side of faith promoting or on the side of everyone's being scammed, this is terrible, and let's leave the faith. It's difficult to walk that middle line sometimes, but with sci-fi fantasy, you can kind of skirt that and write something and you're not coming down on one side or the other, but you can talk about religious issues like faith like agency and covenants without stepping on people's toes. Did you read any of the um, alternative history? What were they called? Uh, the, the Mormon steampunk series that came out over the last couple of years. I have not read those ones. Um, when I was working on, I wrote a paper in college about Mormons and sci-fi fantasy, and I read some of Scott Card's Folk of the Fringe, mm. and then the LDSF, um, there was a series of LDSF books mm-hmm. that were, short story compilations of LDS works, but I have not read those ones. They're on my list. you got to catch up. I really enjoy those. Uh, Dave Butler and some of his friends put it together. Edited some really fun stories. I mean, it's a mix. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of stories, and there's mixed quality. But right, and there's that Monsters and Mormons compilation that's kind of horror, which is specfic adjacent. So there's a lot of stuff going on that's about Mormon, or that's like Mormon sci-fi, and then there's lots of Mormons in science fiction nowadays with The Expanse being on... Mm-hmm. Uh, television like that's that's got Mormons in it and then there's lots of Mormons writing spec fic that's not about Mormons but it, a lot of it has pretty Mormon themes I think. Are there any up and coming authors that you're interested in? Oh well there's an author who just won the Writers of the Future contest well got second place in this quarter's contest named Brittany Rainston um, she had a story in Deep Magic's most recent issue called Perfectly Painted Lies which was super interesting a magical painting school kind of like gulag hogwarts mm-hmm. if you will it's it's not not a good place you don't want to go there um but it was really interesting and so winning the writers of the future contest is often a springboard into a science fiction career so i'm really interested to see where she goes with this she's a really talented writer thanks well okay let's go on to some some other novels amanda i think you read one called the paper daughters of chinatown by heather b moore can you tell us about that Yeah, it's um, not exactly Mormon-themed. There are Christian themes in it, which, as someone who doesn't really like heavy-handed religious themes sometimes, um, I thought it was handled really, really well. So the premise is talking about in San Francisco in late 1800s, early 1900s, a lot of Chinese girls were brought to America illegally and then sold into prostitution. And they were known as paper daughters because on paper they were you know, going to be married off or had already been married and were joining a husband or their family, but that was all a lie. And so it focuses on this woman who, based in truth, um, this woman who ran this house that took in all of these Asian prostitutes and saved them from a life in sexual slavery. Um, I thought it was beautifully written. And since it is based in truth, it's kind of harrowing to think that this this has happened in this country, this can does continue in this country, um, and I thought it was a beautiful way of handling it, yeah. Well, let's look at some of the books that are about Mormonism. Let's start looking at some historical novels first. We had Phyllis Barber and Dean Hughes, along with John Benyon, on this podcast uh, a few months ago, but so their books were among 
the ones that you read, uh, Phyllis Barber's The Desert Between Us. Amanda, what'd you think of that? That was another really interesting one. The writing was gorgeous. It touches on polygamy and other themes of loneliness. And it's also based in this weird historical fact about camels being in the area. Right? <laughs> Which I, I was like, what? Is this real? Yeah, it seems so bizarre to me. I had no idea that that was a thing. Um, so yeah, camel features <laughs> rather prominently in the story. So I... I went in reading it thinking it was more of a romance, and it wasn't. There is a romantic element in it, but it wasn't as much of a romance that I, as I had expected. So it wasn't quite what I was anticipating, but I still thought it was very well written. So we've had a run recently of novels about 19th century, uh, late 19th century Utah and polygamy, including uh, The Desert Between Us. Dean Hughes has two novels, a series, first one, Muddy, set in the same terrible town in Nevada where The Desert Between Us was set. Oh, and the first one, Muddy, won the Association for Mormon Letters Novel Award last year. And so then the sequel, River, uh, follows this fa same family going to Orderville. So it's a lot about polygamy and the United Order during that time. So very heavy historical. But I, Dean Hughes, I think, is an excellent author and yeah, he is. It was it was interesting. I didn't know a lot of the facts that um, I've never I've heard of Orderville, but I didn't know the story of Orderville. So it was interesting to see how it kind of devolves and the politics of Orderville kind of had an interesting reflection on modern politics of the p pandemic and face masks, like choosing to contribute, choosing not to contribute. It was it was interesting to read in this time period. Oh, that's so interesting. When and also it's interesting that. These novels are very much about uh, polygamy. Well, Dean Hughes' novel is published by Desert Book. And I think Desert Book in the past has not wanted its authors to talk about polygamy uh, and other di difficult historical subjects. But it appears that now they're more willing to do that. Uh, I think Dean Hughes is an author they trusted. And so, and he's definitely, you know, definitely looks at how difficult it was. I mean, that's the, this, this family and they're living polygamy and they make it work. But it's very, very hard for them. And there's a second novel that came out also from Shadow Mountain, part of Desert Book, uh, Marianne Monson's Her Quiet Revolution. With a very long subtitle. Her Quiet Revolution, a novel of Martha Hughes Cannon, frontier doctor and first female state senator. So historical fiction. Yeah, this one was super interesting. Um, I think everyone in the church needs to learn more about Martha Hughes Cannon. She's really interesting and amazing, such a fascinating part of our history. And I found that the yeah the section on polygamy in this book was one of the most riveting ones I've I've read that made me really understand what would drive someone to get into a polygamous marriage when we're getting towards the end of polygamy where polygamy is illegal and like she enters into this polygamous marriage when there are federal investigators wandering around Salt Lake City trying to track down polygamists and she marries a polygamist in this situation like why she decides to do it and what happens and how her mind changes again and again about how she feels about her polygamous marriage. And it's not just one thing, it's several things. And that whole spectrum of experience is reflected in the book. River ends where polygamy ends, you know, at the manifesto. And then these families have the question of, well, what do we do now? You know, do we... Yeah, do we yeah, and that that is covered in... Um, the her quiet revolution as well, right? She comes home from exile in England and polygamy's been outlawed and the church has published the manifesto and so she's no longer married. She runs against her husband for her state senate seat and wins. And she continues having children 
even though she is not married. And it is very interesting. She's not legally married, but they continue the, their polygamous Mm-mm. relationship. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting. And she's It ends that she's kept out of the United States Congress because she's pregnant again. And that's not something that the Congress can handle. <laughs> so Desert Book is taking on some difficult issues, and I think that's great. Let's look at some novels that are published by other presses where there's even more freedom to do interesting and strange things. Uh, Mahonai Stewart, who is a playwright, he's been known you know, as a, one of the leading playwrights in Mormonism for the last 20 years or so. And he came out with his first novel, A New Age of Miracles, about the early years of Joseph Smith. I thought this one was really fascinating. Getting to read a story that I have read about, I have been learning in Sunday school about for my whole life, and getting a fictionalized account of it with flawed characters who I can very easily relate to. I think a lot of times in in church, generally, we take these historical figures who are very prominent in our history and we put them on a pedestal. And it was kind of nice to just see them a little more grounded in actual historical fact. And one thing I thought was also really interesting about the book is he he brings in a lot of elements of the folk magic that Joseph Smith and his family were involved with. So this is Joseph Smith and his immediate family going up to the first vision. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, it goes past the first vision a bit. A I bit. think the first vision is kind of like two-thirds of the way in. It kind of goes up to the finding of the golden plates, actually, and then, but not to the getting of the golden plates. All right. Liz, what did you think of the novel? Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I agree with Amanda. It's, it was fascinating to see them integrated so well. The newer research from, you know, Rough Stone Rolling and all those things, which would probably make most people who hadn't heard of it feel uncomfortable, but it's integrated so well that it just is right there. He makes it feel like the story couldn't have been told any other way, like it was always this way. And there's this one chapter when Joseph Smith Sr. has the equivalent of a Lehi's dream, and then oh yeah, Matt that calls was him great. a visionary man. Really interesting. <laughs> yeah, I that was some serious Book of Mormon parallels he got in there. Which is from the Lucy Mack uh, Smith biography. Yeah, that's a, that's a true story. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Now another novel that's set in modern times, but very much about this period, is Rick Grudner's 116. Amanda, did you read that? I did. It is a pretty big epic of a book. And it kind of reminded me of kind of the style of George R.R. R. Martin, because it's not a fantasy, but <laughs> just so many characters and being able to alternate the different uh, perspectives and just really in-depth journey going on. And it it took the the writer, I heard, like 20 years to really write the book, but it came out at the perfect time because if you saw um, Netflix's Murder Among the Mormons documentary, this touches on the very similar topic of um, trying to find, you know... The Mormon document. Yeah, <laughs> uncovering this, uh, you know, Mormon document that may or may exist, 116 pages, we might have found them. And this journey of, you know, practicing active Mormons and a splinter group and this one guy who's just interested in old documents who's gotten involved with it. It's quite a fun journey. There's a little bit of a detective murder mystery. There's threatening elements, you know. It's very murder among the Mormons. Like, couldn't have timed the market better. Yeah. <laughs> and Grudner is a bookseller who lives in New York State. So let's talk about Medi Harrison's The Woman's Book of Mormon, Volume 1. Liz, what's that novel about? So it's Medi Harrison's kind of retelling of the Book of Mormon, but from a different perspective. It begins with Soraya's perspective of 
the flight out of Jerusalem. She passes her record orally onto her daughter, and that, you know, this record is passed in tandem to the physical record kept by the men. It's extremely interesting take on the Book of Mormon narrative. I especially thought that the part with Sariah and her daughter is really, really strong. It includes a lot of people who are not included in the Book of Mormon, obviously, but it includes characters who are gay, who are transgender, all sorts of different characters and how they might have seen this society. I believe this volume goes through the people of Limhi getting back to the people of Mosiah. There's a volume two to come out sometime, but I feel like that first section and then the section with Limhi's wife and their struggles under um, the oppression of the Lamanites are just really interesting, highly recommended. Now, Mehdi had another novel this year, or no, this is in 2021. She has a novel that just came out called The Prodigal Daughter. And this is, I think, the fourth volume in her murder mystery, Linda Walheim series. Amanda, I think you've read that. What did you think of that novel? I am such a fan of the series. Um, I, When I first heard about The Bishop's Wife back in 2014, I guess it was, like I used all my librarian connections to get an advanced reader copy. And so I do that with every one of these books because I love them so much. This one was actually difficult to read. Medi kind of puts in a lot of current events in, in these books, so like very much ripped from the headlines kind of stories. This one, the author has experienced a lot of faith transition, and that's reflected in the story. And you see that in our main character, Linda, who's the actual bishop's wife, who's experiencing these things. And she's struggling with her son's baby daughter's babysitter has is having some struggles and they don't really know why. And so Linda steps in and she's trying to figure out what happened to this lovely teenager and discovers this horrible thing that occurred to her and it was from, you know, people she knew at church. And so it's reconciling like how you deal with faith when the culture may not reflect that very well, um, when it does not give you the positive needs that you have that you want. I tend to read these books all in one setting because I love them so much and they're very fast paced and I know these characters and I know the kind of community and people that are involved in this. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a gut punch of a book, but it's good. So she is writing novels about Mormonism for this national market. Uh, how do you think she does for a Mormon reader who knows about this stuff and how do you think it would be for a non-Mormon reader approaching these kind of novels for the first time? I think she really succeeds in this. I can be very critical of people who may have left the church and they write about a Mormon community or Mormon characters, and you can tell they have a lot of anger and frustration. <laughs> and that is valid, and that that's fine. Um, and that is also needed. Um, but I think many Harrison toes the line really, really well, where she acknowledges that there is goodness in this community while there is also some darkness and just how people work through that. And she demonstrates that with her characters. There are some that their faith is never really shaken that much and they can persevere and others, something seemingly small may even happen to them and that wrecks their testimony. So she also it does a good job of kind of explaining our doctrine in, in a in layman's terms, <laughs> and without mm. being too heavy-handed and trying to be preachy, um, she just says, this is what it is, moving on. <laughs> That's all you need to know for the context of this story. Well, so this is a novel about contemporary Mormonism, and there were several other books that were, you know, set in kind of contemporary Utah in particular, uh, and family issues, and some members in the church, and some members out of the church, and the, the dynamics around that. Two of them were Twyla Nui's Sylvia and Charity Shumway's Bountiful, which were both published by 
by Common Consent Press. Liz, what did you think of Sylvia? Well, I was going to just say the BCC Press is hitting it out of the park with these. Sylvia is is really interesting. It's one of kind of that genre of the novel about four women. If this is not a genre, it should be. And it's it's these four sisters who are getting together after their mother's sudden death in a car accident. It's not so much about the plot as it is about exploring these four sisters and their relationship to their family and their faith and their life choices and their circumstances. Yeah, I sort of saw it as a Joy Luck Club with Mormon women. Yeah, exactly. Joy Luck Club, Little Women, Pride and Prejudice. Like, There's a lot of these books about four women. And it has a really clever conceit in that there's seven days between her death and the funeral. And so those are like the seven days of creation. And there's little inserts in there as you find out more about these women and it unfolds and their creation is finished on the seventh day. Both Bountiful and Sylvia really resonated with me. Um, Sylvia takes place in the tree streets in Provo and I've lived there. (laughs) So it's very familiar territory for me. And Bountiful was... That one has like a special place in my heart simply because like the main character, one of the main characters is in her 30s and she's single and living in Utah. And that was me. Um, So the portrayal of what it's like to be that age in a singles ward was spot on. Just dealing with a lot of insecurities and the kinds of guys you interact with when you're a woman and and just the disasters that dating can be and just feeling like this is not where I want my life to be. I need to be doing something else What and be feeling that frustration. Um, so I really appreciated that. And, and Bountiful, the 30-year-old single woman character, her mother decides to run for local office and she's been a housewife and it's kind of sudden and her mom is like making this big life change and asks her daughter to like help her campaign. And they have personality differences, but they are able to- And political differences. And political differences, yeah, which is also interesting. Very interesting. (laughs) That they try to navigate. So we're we're getting, you know, their relationship together plus how the mom's learning how to be a political candidate and deal with local politics and, you know, thinking you're running against your former state president and what's that going to be? Who's a Democrat? (laughs) (laughs) And then she's got another- contender who seems to be like more of a fundamentalist Mormon woman with loads of kids. And I actually wanted to hear more about that particular character. So I'm, I'm mm. kind of hoping the author comes up with a, with a sequel so we can learn what happens to these characters after the election. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Like you said about Mehdi Harrison's book, this one is good about not saying this side is right and that side is wrong. Heather and her, Heather is the, the younger single character and Nedra, her mother, are both sympathetic, mm-hmm. and one is more traditional Orthodox Mormon, and one is single and struggling with her faith and has questions and has progressive views, and neither of them comes out as right. Right, yeah, they, um, they're both, you, you see both sides. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's so hard for an author to portray both of those equally sympathetically, I feel like, and Charity Shumway just hit it out of the park. One more novel from 2020 is Robert Van Wagner's The Contortionists. Amanda, I think you read that. What did you think of that novel? This was another one I couldn't put down. Um, I did not know what to expect with this one. It focuses on, you know, a cute Mormon family with a little boy, and the little boy goes missing. And so you follow the trajectory of searching for the little boy and what happens with that, and then focusing on his parents and his grandparents and extended family. So the little boy's aunt, she had been a missionary, I think, in Norway, 
and fell in love while she was on her mission and left her mission and lived with a man. And that's like, oh, that's horrible. Breaking your mother's heart kind of thing. But so she's kind of viewing what's happening with her family back home with, you know, missing this, their, her nephew. And she has a different perspective on it simply because, you know, she, she can't deal with the church culture anymore, <laughs> and, but she knows about it. And then you're getting some of the backstory of this little boy's parents and how they met and how they got together. And it was also one of those stories was like, I know these people, I know this community, I know how this would function. And I, I get the struggles that these characters are having. I understand some of the faith struggles that they've had as well. But it's also, you know, very much a true crime kind of story. So it was very edge of your seat, keeping you moving along to the conclusion that I don't want to give away. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a lot of books. What were your favorite ones? Uh, what are the ones that what were your favorites? What are the ones that you would maybe recommend for a book group? Uh, well, I mean, I've already recommended Bountiful to my mother and sister and my both of my book clubs. Yeah, I've so. recommended that one to a couple of people already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that one is just so good. And I also, I mean, Her Quiet Revolution, I've recommended to people just because I think more people need to know who Martha Hughes Cannon is. Amanda, what were your favorites? D- yeah, definitely Bountiful. Uh, Prodigal Daughter was another favorite. Um, both of those are just the kind of reads that I, I love to have. But even like A New Age of Miracles might, thinking about that as a book club book is kind of interesting. Um, it's it's not that long of a read, um, which I know some book clubs prefer. They prefer a little bit of a shorter read, mm-hmm. but just being able to frame the Sunday school story in a different way might make for some pretty cool discussion. Well, let's look at some of the books coming up this year in 2020, have come out or are going to come out in 2021. One is by David Duchovny, who was the actor from The X-Files, and, and he has a novel called Truly Like Lightning. No, he's not a Mormon, but he's writing a novel about a man who becomes converted to, well, the Mormonism of Joseph Smith. He doesn't join the church, but he becomes a believer of the Book of Mormon and in polygamy. And so I heard about this and I said, oh, David, he's an actor and writing about a sensational subject. And I thought, okay, this is going to be terrible. But I've actually read some very strong reviews of it. Uh, he's, he's published several novels and they say, okay, his first ones, he wasn't great, but he's gotten really good now. And that this is a very interesting take on belief. I'm looking forward to hearing some more about that. Yeah, I think I'm going to put that one on my TBR. (laughs) Yeah, it's always interesting to see what you get from an outsider perspective on the Mormon story. Well, and then by LDS authors, uh, Levi S. Peterson, who's one of the the greats of 20th century LDS fiction, who wrote the novel The Backslider, has a new collection of short stories, Losing a Bit of Eden, published by Signature just in May. Ten stories, several of them are new. I think a lot of them are ones that have appeared in dialogue over the last decade or so. So I'm very excited about that. There's a collection of stories and poems called Blossom as the Cliff Rose, Mormon Legacies and the Beckoning Wild, edited by Karen Anderson and Danielle Dubrowski, which is poems and prose about the environment and about LDS connections with uh, the landscape of the West. Yeah, this one looks really interesting. I'm interested to see it. So Rosalind Eves is a young adult author, and she has a new novel, Beyond the Map Stars, which is set in 19th century, an LDS girl who becomes involved in a railway heist. And so this is a nationally published YA novel, so it's exciting to see uh, LDS characters in a novel like that. For sure, that aren't polygamists, maybe. (laughs) Well, we'll see. It's 19th century, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) Polygamy is a pretty strong draw. (laughs) 
Uh, Catherine Cowley has a Regency novel, The Secret Life of Miss Mary Bennett, based on the uh, Pride and Prejudice. Which one? Is it Pride and Prejudice? Yeah, or, the character or? from Pride and Prejudice, and she becomes a detective spy. Ooh. It sounds really interesting. I, I bought it already. I haven't started it yet. James Goldberg and Jancy Patterson. Jancy is a, another graduate of the Brandon Sanderson School, I believe. Brandon Sanderson study at BYU. Yeah, she's also writing some novellas with him this year. So. Oh, okay. Well, James and Jancy have a co-authored an awful called The Bollywood Lovers Club about a sick Indian sick girl from California who moves to Ohio where she meets a half-Indian LDS boy, probably based on James, and their adventures. I shared this one with a friend this morning because she is also married to an Indian Mormon boy from Ohio. So I was like, look, you're in literature. <laughs> well, she converted him, you know, flirt to convert. So not often that she sees her family represented in literature. So she's really excited. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I know James has been really pushing for having more people of color in LDS literature. So that sounds like a great combination of their forces. Yeah. Matt Page put out a, a comic, oh, yeah. kind of a multimedia comic called Future Day Saints. Did you see that, Liz? I did. I actually backed the Kickstarter for the first one. It is wacky. It is very different. It's nothing like anything you've ever seen. It's less like a comic and more like a like an encyclopedia. Multimedia was a good word you used to describe it. It's got like ads. It's got comics. It's got journal entries. It's got news reels. It's just everywhere. It's got like activity book things yep, too, right? Yep. I think he said there's things like you can pull out and, and make your own little paper dolls out of things. Oh yeah, and, it's, and like it's very experimental, super interesting. This is a sci-fi about Mormons because it is set in the future and all the characters are kind of puns on Mormon things. It's very, very, very wacky, kind of fun. And he has a second volume coming out this summer called Future Day Saints 2, The Nolamite Crystal. All right, so I'm excited. There's lots of great stuff coming out. Do you have any thoughts about what's going on in LDS literature these days? I like seeing that people are we're playing with themes. We're, we're not being as traditional with our storylines. We're being like Matt Page. We're just <laughs> taking our culture and our heritage and we're just throwing, tossing it in the air and seeing what sticks and having fun with it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's so many interesting things going on. And if you're still stuck thinking Mormon literature is the work and the glory, then you need to come back and take a look at these books. Like I know a lot of my book club friends kind of roll their eyes like, oh, Mormon literature, I don't need to read that. Um, but there's some really interesting stuff going on with being able to talk more openly about polygamy, even in the Deseret book novels, and being able to talk about folk magic and the conflicts that are going on in our culture are something we can explore through literature too. There's just so much to be gained from reading these books. That's great. Liz? Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Amanda, thank you so much for bringing your insights. Thank you so much. This show is part of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture, including wonderful shows like Face and Hat, featuring Aaron Brewster and Eric Jepson. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Hey, this is Blair Hodges. Do you think of yourself as spiritual but not religious? 
Or maybe you feel more religious than spiritual. Or maybe you're not quite sure what labels fit you best because things kind of go back and forth. Like it depends on the day and, and you felt all of it or none of it. But most of all, you're really interested in thinking about religion, spirituality, and culture. Well, there's a seat for you at Fireside with Blair Hodges. In season one of this brand new podcast, I'll sit down with some of my favorite writers and scholars to talk about some of the best books. If you're seeking after things that are virtuous, lovely, of good report, praiseworthy, and most important, fascinating and challenging, Fireside is for you. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are found. Season one drops later this year. Fireside is brought to you by the Mormon Studies Program at Claremont Graduate University and the Dialogue Foundation. Proud part of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Learn more at firesidepod.org or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod Fireside. I'm Blair Hodges, and I'm saving a seat for you.